Thanks so much for being here. My name is Seth. I am one of the pastors here on staff. I get to teach this text today. We're going through a series on Genesis, and we're kind of taking a slow look at different aspects of how Genesis 1 applies to our life. But first, before I get into teaching the Bible, I have some family business to attend to. So uh, everybody get ready and excited for the 2023 year-end financial update. When you thought we need to go to church this morning, you were like, we need to see the financial update. So I know that's why you're here. So you're welcome uh, for giving that. So uh, number one, uh, our budget last year was $3.7 million. So that was our budgeted need for the last year. And here are our actual expenses last year, uh, 3.69. That's pretty dang close. So uh, uh, that's largely because uh, our staff does a really good job span, uh, managing money, but it's also Matthew Browston, who is just the tall guy singing. He's also a pretty good spreadsheet guy. So uh, turns out some people can do, it, do both things, you know, music, money. So there you go. So um, can you imagine living in a country where the government could do that? You know, so <laughs> most of you will only ever imagine it. So there you go. Uh, but so managing the money is one thing, but it's also been, I just want to celebrate how generous our church has been. Uh, our actual giving to the general giving last year was 3.994. That's like a, a $300,000 surplus. Thanks so much. Um, just so you know, we have a mortgage. So where does that surplus go? That's where that's mostly going. It's kind of, uh, uh, it goes into our reserves and then a lot of it will be helped to like pay off mortgage stuff. Nobody's getting bonus checks. That's not how it goes. So just FYI. Um, and our total giving from last year was 4.404 million, which is tremendous. I'm that's a lot of money. That's a lot of money that uh, you all have given. That includes giving to the Benevolence Fund. That includes Christmas offering, um, student scholarships, things like that. So that's a, a good chunk of giving. And so thank you all for trusting our, our team, our staff, with uh, your tithe dollars and other things that you've been giving. So uh, it means a lot, and it's a, a responsibility to take seriously. Uh, and just so you know, our, our budget for this coming year is 4.05, so we're a little bit conservative there still. If you want to have more information about that or have a lot of questions about that, uh, we have these little half sheets with some more details about where that goes and why it goes there uh, in the lobby. And Matthew is always open to meet with folks who uh, just have a lot of burning questions. I know that trusting a place with money can be a big thing, and we want to at least give you enough information that you can help trust with that money. So praise the Lord for that. Thank you all for that. Um, I do think that even in our topic today on rest, the, the idea of margin... Uh, in our finance and margin, in our calendars, there's a lot of parallels there, right? Like talking about money is tough because to be wise with money requires an ongoing practice of living beneath your means. And that is tough because keeping up with the, the Joneses and trying to buy all the things and do all the things, like our expense creep, our lifestyle creep is, is tremendously real. And uh, one of the things that we care about as a church is helping you be able to live beneath your means financially. And so we have this class in the program called Financial Peace University, which is like coaching on how to live beneath your means uh, with money and how to deal with the aftermath if you haven't done that for a really long time, right? You, if you overspend on money, eventually you get debt. And if you spend exactly how much money you get, you kind of have this anxious paycheck-to-paycheck existence. And I don't think, we don't, we don't want anybody to like have to live like that forever. And so Financial Peace University is there for you. But there's like this parallel here to the side of what happens if you spend more time than you have. You disappoint people, you let them down, you, 
you do poor job ma- maintaining and managing relationships, but also a lot of us, we spend all the time we have, and so there's kind of like this frenzied, anxious, buzzing from thing to thing. And uh, thinking about rest first begins with this, this concept of what does it mean for us to live beneath our means, not just with our money, but also with our time. What if we were a community of people with the margins unharvested in our calendars, with the uh, emotional, mental, relational space to be responsive and generous, not just financially, but also with our, our time? What would that look like? How would that feel? And the idea of like tithing, of living 10% beneath your means to invest in the church, there's a similar principle we get with the principle of Sabbath, that is giving one day a week to the Lord, living beneath your means, only harvesting six out of the seven. And so this call to live beneath your means with money and our calendars are kind of similar exhortations to us that we would not maximize our lives, but we'd actually live beneath our means and that would create the type of presence and capacity that God actually has for us. And so we're going to talk about that a bit. So I have three big uh, ideas I'm going to hit here on Christianity and rest. Uh, Number one is that rest is a gift, not a God or a reward. Number two, that uh, creating margin requires both faith and work. And number three, rest is a faithful witness to the kingdom of God. So we're going to see how God rests in this text and go to some of the other parts of the scriptures as well. But let's pray and we'll talk about rest. Father, I'm mindful about even this topic of rest immediately begins this, uh, pushes this feeling of shame of I haven't or I can't, uh, I won't be able to, and so God, I pray that at the outset you would calm our hearts and, and quiet our minds and help us really walk in this sense that you have a gift for us uh, of rest, that you're not trying to shame us or even scold us, but you as a good father are calling us into a rhythm of life that serves our benefit and helps us be the loving people you're calling us to be. So God, I pray that you help us have our creativity jostled, that we might imagine ourselves living lives that are marked by resting in you, and help us have the uh, capacity to carve out uh, nights or weekends or seasons or 24-hour periods that we devote to you uh, in the enjoyment of what you've given us. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So the text we're doing today is Genesis 1. Like I said, we're teaching through Genesis. We talked about work last week. So if you're one of those people who like just rests all the time and you're kind of a lazy bum, listen to last week's sermon. This sermon's going to be more for the type of people who aren't that and need kind of like a kick in the pants from God saying, take a day off, you're not better than God. That's what we're going to get at today, all right? So Genesis 2 goes like this. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work, all that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done. So the word rest there appears twice. Uh, The word rest is the word Shabbat, which kind of gets like taken as Sabbath. It's this idea of being unproductive, of not doing something, of of, uh, devoting a day to not do what you 
typically do. Now, so imagine with me that you are one of the very first people ever to hear this. You're these, this tribe of Israel that's being led out of Egypt. So God's people were enslaved in Egypt for 400 years, dozens and dozens of generations, and God is taking them out of Egypt, out of slavery, into the promised land, and on the way, God by the Spirit moves Moses to record a, a true authoritative telling of how the world began, and these people had just witnessed God part the Red Sea. These people had just witnessed fire rain down from heaven. These people had just witness the plagues that led to their liberation. God, they had just witnessed the power and majesty of God, and they just read Genesis 1 about how this person, God, creates just with his words all things that exist, this all-powerful, almighty, the Holy One, the one who can't be thwarted even by the greatest world power in history, Egypt, that he with ease destroys and liberates the oppressed. And then you read, and this guy rested. How, I just, just imagine with me the shocking nature of the all-powerful one takes a break. The, the almighty who just with his words calls things into existence and he takes a day off. Uh, what is the deal here? Why, what, what? so the first thing we see in Genesis 2 about rest is number one, we don't rest just because we need it. Because God certainly didn't need it, but he did it anyway. Some of you, you don't rest because you feel like you don't need it. That's not the point of this in Genesis 2. The point isn't because you need it, rest. The point is, you're made in God's image. God rested, so you rest. That it's not about necessarily going, I don't have what it takes, I can't do anymore, I need a day off, I can't. It's not about this kind of, I am weak, therefore I need rest. The first thing we get is we rest because that's the pattern God established for us. You don't need a day off to have a day off. You don't need to be on the verge of overextending yourself to take a break. What you need is to be made in God's image and to say yes to God when he says, take a day off. This isn't about shaming our capacity. This is about representing God faithfully, that God takes a break and he, then he calls our people to take a break. This commandment gets upheld in, uh, in the book of Exodus. It's one of the commandments and it gets talked about in various ways. But what we see here at the very outset is that humans are limited, God is unlimited, God is made in God's image, and we are made in God's image, and he tells us to take a rest. So the temptation that God's people have faced ever since then is to treat the Sabbath like it's this God thing. But one of the things, first things Jesus corrects is when he comes, he's like, hey, this isn't a God, this is not a reward, but he tells us in Mark chapter 2 this. So Jesus is healing a guy on the Sabbath, the Jews kind of get on him about it, and he says to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. That rather than trying to kind of like with a, a over intensity kind of legalistic rule following thing, trying to like definitely do nothing for a 24 hour period, God is saying this was a gift meant to serve the flourishing of people, not necessarily just to 
a command you were supposed to be all fussy about arguing how to do it. Like one of my best friends in high school had open heart surgery at Cedar sinai uh, which is a Jewish hospital in California. And I remember being out there while I had the surgery and being with him a couple days after the surgery and going up and down the elevator in the Jewish hospital on the Saturday that stopped at every floor uh, because pushing the button uh, was work and we don't do work on the Sabbath. And I appreciate the dedication, uh, but also I don't think that was the point of the law when it was given, right? That Sabbath was made to serve human flourishing, not to create a bunch of hoops to jump through so that you can be all fussy about making sure that you obey the law. Like this is God's fatherly instruction to his people that they might be wise and flourish, not the U.S. tax code that's meant to frustrate you and confuse you. That's not the goal here, okay? God's trying to serve Create, help people create conditions for their life that would serve their flourishing. And so Sabbath is not God. God is God. Sabbath is a gift, but it's also not a reward. A lot of the times the message that I hear from folks, especially like millennials and younger, this kind of like self-care culture of like, you should take a day off. You deserve it. As though someone could conversely be told, you shouldn't take a day off. You don't deserve it. And I go like, it actually, I think, doesn't help people when you tell people you deserve a day off because they know they didn't like successfully crush every moment of the whole week. They know that, you know, they, their bathroom break was like a minute or two too long. You know, they, they know that the people down the street work like, then you're kind of doing like the who deserves it, who doesn't deserve it game. And I think it creates this kind of either smug self-righteousness or this kind of shamey, I don't really deserve it thing. But the whole point of the Sabbath was so God creates Adam and Eve on day six and on day seven is the day of rest. The very first thing Adam and Eve did was have a day of rest. They didn't work six days and then earn their day of rest. They were created and then had a day of rest and then got busy obeying the rest of the stuff. That Sabbath, a day off, is not rooted in you deserve it or you worked hard, therefore you get it. It's rooted in you're made in the image of God, so you get a day off. This is a gift, not a reward you earned and not a God you in fussiness submit to and try to follow all that. This is a gift. We are not good at receiving gifts as people. We like receiving compensation, input, output. What I get what I deserve. Like we don't, it's harder for many people to take a gift than to take a paycheck because I should have that. This is why whenever you do a gift exchange, you get clarity on what's the budget because what you don't want to be is the person who does like the holiday gift exchange at work and you bring a pair of Scooby-Doo socks and someone else gives out an iPad and you're like, oh, this is awkward. What was the budget? <laughs> also, we, we like have this kind of, uh, we want our cake, we want to eat it too thing, right? So my son Jay's birthday is in November and he gets like infinity presents and I'm like, this kid's going to turn out entitled for sure, you know? And so there's like this like, how many of these presents can we just like rewrap and put under the Christmas tree and just kind of like space this out a little bit, hold on to the gift? Because uh, I think he needs like two gifts. He's going to be fine. Like it's, he needs a pile of dirt and a shovel and he's going to be more happy than whatever this thing is. And so you kind of, this is temptation that we face is to go like, God gives us this gift every week called Sabbath, and we want to like collect them and save them and put them in the bank and then spend them all in July. 
And no, we need to open our gifts and use our gifts every single week. Like this is not a gift you hoard. This is a gift you open and enjoy and receive. This is, this is not a, there's not a banking system. That I, know that, I know you accrue time off at work, but God every single week gives you another gift. And so we want to not treat it like a gift. We want to treat it like something we earn. We want to treat it like a God we get fussy about. But God is saying, I give you a gift every week. Please open it. Now, what I don't want to do is get overly specific about, like, I don't think that from Friday at sundown till Saturday at sundown is the exact way this plays out now, right? So Colossians 2 verse 16 says, let no one pass judgment on you in matters of feasting or moons or Sabbaths because these things were a shadow of things to come. The substance belongs to Christ. That the, the principle of living life in rhythm of God's rest, that generally speaking for most people, like a 24-hour period of Sabbath is right. But for a lot of folks like your work schedules move, they shift, you have to work on Saturday or whatever it is. So like it could be a Wednesday, it could be a Sunday. The point being is I don't want us to be fussy about how to apply it, but I want us to be grateful and then apply it. All right? So uh, this, this, this command is held up and it's really countercultural in this way. In the book of Exodus, it talks about it like this um, in, in the commandments. Remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. That's devoted to the Lord. So this is one of the reasons why like the, the church, generally speaking, uh, observes the Sabbath day on Sunday because it's Resurrection Sunday. We're devoting ourselves to the Lord. That it's not just doing nothing, but it's resting in God. And so regular Sunday worship, I think, is part of our Sabbath rhythm as people. We're reminding ourselves of the rest that God has given us, setting ourselves on Him. Resting is not just doing nothing, playing Netflix, or doing Netflix and playing video games. It's actually kind of purposefully connecting with God and other people and, and uh, to the Lord. So Sunday church is a big part of that. Six days you shall labor. There's a command. Uh, there is this kind of uh, three and a half days I labor, and the other days I just kind of Rest is not very satisfying if you kind of like live a life that's patterned by laziness, right? There's a type of rest that comes after six days of work that's really restful. Like your, your body gets tired and so you rest. Six days you shall work. I think it's helpful to think about being productive six days a week and being unproductive one day a week. Because uh, it's figuring out whether it's like job or uh, work you're paid for or not paid for. I think it's the point of already producing versus taking a break from producing. You shall not do any work, not you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourners within your gates. Now again, imagine you just came out of Egypt from slavery and you've been a slave with no rights for 400 years, multiple generations, and God says, Sabbath day for you and your servants, your employees, and your ox, and your milk cow, and your, that even the animals rest. Even the people with no rights in the land rest. Even the people who are just passing through rest. This is radically taking the doctrine of the image of God, and even the, the idea of being creation, and saying that all of creation gets to rest like God gets to rest. This would have been so radically countercultural, this idea that servants and slaves get a rest day too. Because they haven't had a rest day in 400 years. And he says, you're not going to be like Egypt. You're going to give your employees and your servants days off. Especially those of you who are employers and bosses. You know, creating a culture where people can actually take days off. That's often not like 
in the employee handbook, that's in a culture of how you conduct yourselves and how you behave. And respecting your employees enough to really honor true days off is a big, is a big part of that. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that's in them, and rest on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed Sabbath day and made it holy, devoted to him. This is the principle that this God gives us this gift and says, you are not better than God. We like to think of ourselves as irreplaceable, that I have to work, otherwise nothing will happen. And God is saying, I took a day off. I promise the world will be fine if you take a day off. I don't care how much of a heavy hitter you are in your company. If you take a new job, guess what? They will figure it out. If you create boundaries and take a day off, they will figure it out. Think about Nick Saban, best college football coach in the history of college football. Success on every level, at every sphere, consistently for a long time. He retired, and guess what? His office was cleared out, and they're on to the next guy in three days. None of you are Nick Saban caliber people, I don't think. No offense. But part of what the Sabbath is teaching us is I am replaceable and I'm okay with that. The world goes on without me and I am okay with that. Things will get left undone and I will pick it up in a day and I'm okay with that. The whole house doesn't need to be clean like you're hosting a party every day. Every email doesn't get it answered every day. Like there's, we have to create cultures where we let people be humans before they are employees. We will not be like Pharaoh, who is a tyrant and uses people. We will respect people as people and let them, who they are as humans, be separate from who they are in their jobs. And that requires creating margin. The next thing I want to talk about is how creating margin actually takes both work and faith. Creating margin requires both work and faith. We see some of this in the book of Exodus, that when God's people are leaving Egypt to go to the promised land, God's raining manna down from heaven for them, for them to pick up. And so he's letting manna come out. And here's what happens in Exodus 16, after they've been told to honor the Sabbath. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. That's extra work being done in order to carve out a day when you don't do that work. So this isn't like a, a baseline promise, like take a day off, it will be easy. But it's like you might have to work a little harder leading up to that to really keep a full day, to be fully present to your family, fully present to your neighbors, fully present to your, your, your hobbies, fully present to whatever, like to the Lord. You have to do that. It takes some discipline. It takes some work. So they're going to do twice as much work on the sixth day so they can take that day off. Not everyone needs to do twice as much work to take a day off. But my point is, you might have to work a little harder to really carve out time to be fully present and uninterruptible and keep the phone on do not disturb and do that for a full 36 hours. It might take a little work leading up to it and executing it. And this is to be understood. And verse 23 says, And he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil. And all that is left over lay aside to be kept till morning. But on the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather. This is highlighting how 
even though you know what God is asking you to do, there's still this pattern, this instinct of working all the time that needs to be broken. For generations, these people have been working seven days a week. They go out on sixth day. They gather twice as much. Tomorrow we're not going to work. And then habit kicks in, instinct kicks in, and they go out and they work. That happens to me. I'm, it's on like a Saturday. I'm checking the scores of whatever. Next thing I know, I'm on work email. Whoops. I went out to gather on the seventh day. You know, there's like this, oh, I'm... Then my wife's like, hey, what are you doing on your phone? And I'm like, why? You know, <laughs> so who wants to know? And I have to, oh, oops, I was working on it. Like, especially in digital world, there's these periods where you go, I'm working on accident. And you just have to confess that and not do it. Now, I know, like, depending on your type of work and how that flows and how that works, like, these, these are like situational different things, like depending on your job and especially if you're a stay-at-home mom, you're like, sorry, kids, feed yourself. I know you're too, but it's my day off, you know? Like, so there's, this requires situational creativity, but it requires some work most of the time to create a culture, to establish norms, to get people used to receiving boundaries, to do the thing where you go like, I know we, by instinct, want to work seven days a week, but I, by faith, want to not. So how can we work through that together? Some of these are just employee, company, culture conversations. Some of these are just respecting your coworkers and being quick to, like, confess, I'm sorry I tried to get you to work on a Saturday. My mind was just racing. I want to save those things for Monday when I can. So... There's a negotiating thing that has to happen there. Uh, what we see in the next section here, in the next line, the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? God is like, you're treating my law like it's a bad thing. You know, like you're, I'm trying to create conditions for human flourishing and you won't. So I, I think the Lord's saying that to a lot of us here. How long until you just like stop resisting my good word to you? I'm creating this for you. You don't. It also takes faith. Um, and we see this in the book of Leviticus. This is a, kind of an obscure law, but it demonstrates a principle here, which is that we need to live beneath our means and leave our margins unharvested. All right? So here's what it says. And when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. That is, leave a margin there. Nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. Meaning, don't squeeze every drop of profit out of your land. So kind of go generally towards the edge, but not all the way up to the edge. And if you drop some stuff, don't worry about it. Keep going. So it's like there's this principle that like people feel like I need to squeeze every ounce of profit out. And God is saying, don't worry about that. You have more than you need. That's the thrust here. You have more than you need. See, we feel like we don't have enough because our lifestyle creep measures need on the basis of comparison. What do you mean I have enough? I don't, my kitchen is 11 years old. What do you mean I have more than I need? Do, do you realize my car has 110,000 miles? That is an old car. And so we, we think we don't have enough because we're comparing ourselves to the random people who have slightly more than us. And so the lifestyle creep gets on us. And so we, we, but God is saying, if you have a field, you have more than you need. This is the, having that abundance mentality is what we have. I have more than I need. That I need to live beneath my means and not squeeze out every deal. That we tend to over-harvest on our budgets and over-harvest on our calendars. And so we don't have the space or time to actually walk in the Sabbath. 
Here's what the next part says. Is, you shall leave them for, go back to that last verse, you shall leave them for the sojourner. I am the Lord, your God. He's saying you creating margin financially is actually the space with which you are generous to those who don't have anything. That if you live paycheck to paycheck, your capacity to be generous is low. But I think it's also a point we can apply to our calendars. That if we harvest our entire calendar and leave none of it unharvested, then our capacity to be responsive in relationships and in community to needs is really low. So if you want to be generous with your money, carve out margin, live beneath your means. If you want to be generous with your time, carve out margin, live beneath your means. That takes faith. It requires believing that God has provided for me more than I have. It requires repenting of measuring my self-worth compared to my net worth, especially compared to the net worth of other people. That God provides and carves out margin. And so we can too. The next thing I think rest that testifies to us is really kind of three conditions. Rest is a faithful witness to God that he's the all-powerful one. It's a faithful witness to creation, pointing back to the creator. And it's a faithful witness to the coming kingdom as we consider what life will be like when the rat race is finally over and we rest eternally in Christ. So the first thing that we get to testify to when we rest is that God is God and I am not God. God is omnipotent. I am very limited. And this is part of the message that we get through Psalm 121 is this idea that I go to sleep every night and it's a testimony to the fact that God does not sleep. Usually it says, he who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. I can sleep at night because God does not sleep at night. God is thinking about all the things. God is mindful of all the things. God is in touch with all the stuff. God is understanding all the situations. I, through my anxious perseverating can't and so there's this act of faith that is going to sleep every night saying I am not God I have to trust God to be God and leave things unfinished and leave things unsaid and leave things untouched you pray this for yourself as you go to sleep every night God I sleep because you don't sleep This is trying to turn over our worry and our anxiety and our stress to the Lord. Saying, I'm carrying all this, but you are God. So I try to sleep. You know, I had some kind of like weird, insecure preacher nightmare last night. That like during the 830 service, uh, people were like always teaching on rest. And people were just like boring and they started leaving. And I was like trying to keep teaching while people were just leaving. And then the 8.30 on their way out told all the 10 o'clockers, don't come, it's on rest. And I don't usually have those kind of weird preacher dreams, but apparently they happen. Uh, but it was like, so you kind of wake up, it's like 2 a.m. You're like, well, Lord, if that happens, it's kind of on you because uh, you're God and I'm not. And I try to go to sleep, you know. Like there's, like, but the mind races and the capacity to like rest in God is is difficult, where our over-responsibility, our higher estimation of self than is true. Uh, we want to faithfully do what we can, but then when we hit our limits, we have to turn over to the Lord every single time. It's also a testimony back to creation. 
In Hebrews 4, it talks about how God takes his people out of slavery and into the promised land. But they, even when they get to the promised land, they're not in the promised land because they're not really trusting in the Lord. And how, uh, but we who believe in Christ's death and resurrection, we have entered that rest. Here's what it says. Is, For we who have believed, in the book of Hebrews is about, we have trusted in Christ's death and resurrection, we enter that rest. The, that we get a glimpse, a taste of the eternal rest that we have coming to us. It says, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. There's two parts of this. That we, in taking a day off, are bearing witness to the fact that God took a day off in creation. In a world where less and less people believe in creation, just taking a day off is one way we can say, hey, I'm not better than God. God takes a day off. I take a day off. God took a day off in creation. That, that in our speech with our, with our friends and our neighbors, our, our schoolmates and our coworkers, is one way of just with our actions to model and tell people, hey, I believe in the creator. He took a day off and he asked me to as well. But it also talks about how we have rested from our works. In particular, the work we do, that's the most anxious thing we do, which is trying to prove ourselves to God and be good enough. Part of the reason we don't take days off is there's this constant feeling of, I'm not doing enough, I'm not enough, I haven't proved enough, and I'm trying to like earn the approval of God. And there's like this anxious overworking thing happening because we think that we're still trying to earn our rest from God and especially earn eternal rest in God in the new heavens and the new earth. The first team I ever tried out for was like my middle school basketball team in seventh grade. And I remember being super nervous. My dad's a basketball coach. Expectations. There's like 30 kids trying out for 12 spots. They're all seventh graders. And you go to basketball tryouts and tryouts and tryouts. And then the tryouts ended on Friday. And on Monday, because they just wanted you to be anxious all weekend, they're going to post who made the team on the principal's door. So then all 30 kids have to walk up, and most of them have the worst day of their lives, and a third of them have a good day. That's, I was thinking, whoever designed this hasn't really considered the feelings of seventh grade boy in a while, you know? So, but all weekend I'm nervous, you know? And I get dropped off, you know, hey, I'll wait in the car. When you hear from me, the team, come on back and tell me, you know? And then you walk up to the door, and it's like, not my name, not my name, not my name, my name. Like that exhale, feeling of relief, that is what Hebrews is talking about, that we have rested from our works. That I'm secure in Christ because of his blood. No matter how bad this week goes, I'm secure in Christ for eternity. The ultimate exhale of all exhales is the fact that Jesus died for you and so you don't have to work to prove yourself to God. There are lots of little bits of rest we get in our life, but that is the ultimate one. And it points to the final marriage supper of the Lamb. Now you have to understand, in the Jewish mind, resting was not just doing nothing, but it was most of the time feasting. If you look at throughout the pattern of the Old Testament, the rest days were feast days. Now if you've ever prepared a feast, it is work. So this idea of resting from your work, what it means is your ordinary means of productivity. But if you're going to kill something, butcher something, cook something, prepare something, hospitality, clean up, plating, like creating a feast was work, but it was a type of work that was associated with resting. 
So you're resting, you're not doing your normal work to do this other type of work, which is like the feasting work. And every time we feast, we're actually looking forward to this ultimate and greater feast in Christ. Here's what it says in the book of Revelation 21. The the final feast we look forward to. Then I heard what seemed to be a voice of great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out. You can go to the next slide. Hallelujah for the Lord God our mighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory for the marriage supper of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. This is like a cheers moment, a raise the glass moment. The bride is ready to the king. And no matter how bad our week is, no matter how bad our month is, no matter how bad our year is, feasting is a way of resting in God with defiant hope pointing to the future and eternal rest that we will have. We don't necessarily just feast to celebrate something that has happened, but we feast as a means of practicing hope, looking forward to celebrating what will happen. And so resting in the Lord, feasting to the Lord, celebrating and enjoying the good things he's given us as a people is not just compatible with resting, but it is the culmination of resting, and it's one of the ways we cling to hope in a dark and darkening world. I know the depth and the severity of overwork and suffering and despair and loss that is in our church. And what God is saying to us is we still feast in hope. My hope is that we would be a church that leaves our calendars unharvested, parts of them. And that we are a church known for celebrating and feasting, not just what has been, but also what will be. Let me pray for us. God, help us be a people who rest in you, a people who walk with you, and a people who feast with you. God, give us rest to our weary hearts. Give us the creativity to walk and rest in our various seasons and stations in life. And God, help us receive this as a gift and not a curse meant to shame us. In your name we pray, amen.